All right, here's your quiz for the morning. Raise your hand if you have ever confused your needs with your greeds. You didn't even know what I was going to say. You were raising your hand already. I love it. Oh, I, I, I need the newest $2,000 iPhone. I need a new car. I need... Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, if we just be honest, there's a difference between what you need and, and what you want. Here's where it gets a little bit more complex for Christians, okay? If you were in church, so you have to give the Sunday school answer. If, if I ask, what is everything that you need, the Sunday school answer is Jesus, okay? How many of you wake up thinking about your need for Christ? I hope you do. You know, because the challenge is we have our to-do lists and we have our, our email reminders and we have our Evernote and we have our calendars and we have, you know, notifications on on our phone and we have a lot of things we need to get done. And we don't often think about our need for Christ. As Christians, we know that Jesus is deeply what we need. We just forget about it. Like all the time. The only time we need Jesus is when somebody gets in a car accident, somebody gets a diagnosis, somebody ends up in the hospital. Oh, we need Jesus then. We just don't remember that we, as the song goes, we need him every hour. Press the illustration even more. We need him every moment. And so this morning, as we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, one of our most important needs to be reminded of who he is and who we are and where we fall in the cosmos. Jesus today in his word reminds us of how much we need him when he makes the final I am statement that we're looking at in John's gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. How appropriate for us to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper is we uh, look at this uh, beloved I am statement in John chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 58. We won't look at every verse in detail. But I want to give you a little bit of a context. Today, as Jesus is delivering the message in John chapter 6, there's an important context because of what he did yesterday. You see, yesterday, Jesus has fed 5,000 people. Now, to be honest, if you look back at the beginning of John 6 and John 5, um, it was 5,000 men. Women and children were not counted. So, you know, if you assume that every man that was present had a wife and, you know, two kids, you're talking 20,000 people. So the feeding of the 5,000 is the most inappropriate name in almost all of Scripture. It's, it's far more. There are 5,000 recorded people plus all of the people that they brought with them. So Jesus has fed 5,000. Now, let me tell you, um, you can tell that these uh, good Jews were Baptists because they really liked a free meal. Uh, they really liked a free meal. As a matter of fact, Jesus expresses supernatural knowledge, and he says that he literally, pun intended, has them eating out of his hand. He, he is so popular at this moment that he knows that the crowds are about to seize him, to take him by force and make him king. Listen, if Jesus is king, mama don't got to cook no more, got my vote. Isn't that how politics work? What's in it for me? Not what's good for everyone. What's in it for me? I don't got to cook anymore. Jesus for president. So Jesus withdraws. He says, you know what? I'm not here to establish that kind of political fervor. I'm not a political savior. 
Um, he withdraws and he dismisses his disciples to go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, traveling from the east side to the west side. And Jesus decides not to take the boat. He decides to walk on the water. And so he meets the disciples later on. Everybody on the east side wakes up the next morning and they're like, all right, we know we saw Jesus dismiss his disciples, but uh, he didn't get in the boat and there's no other boats here. So uh, where's Jesus? So they conduct this massive manhunt. They wake up, they look for him, they can't find him. So they go, well, maybe in the middle of the night, he went to Capernaum where he sent his disciples to. So let's travel over there. And they're adamant about finding him. Well, they find him. And in verses 25 through 29, we find out in uh, in John chapter 6, we find out why they were so curious about finding him, why they were so driven about finding him. And Jesus acknowledges that indeed, people were searching for Jesus. That's a good thing, right? People were searching for Jesus. And yet Jesus says that sometimes our searching is selfish. Look at verses 25 through 29. Here's what Jesus says. When the crowds found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're kind of looking at their sundial, I guess, and um, trying to figure out when. I think a far more interesting question is how. And they're not interested in how, they're when. When did you get here? Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. There's a couple really significant things that Jesus says in this passage. The first one is is kind of interesting. In John's gospel, one of the peculiarities of John's gospel, John never refers to the supernatural things that Jesus does as miracles. They're always referred to consistently as signs. And so you think about this. On the interstate, you see a sign that says Charlotte, 20 miles. That sign is not Charlotte. That sign points to a destination, an end, an end goal of where you're going to. So signs are not ends in themselves. They are means to an end. Charlotte, 20 miles, is a means to an end of getting to Charlotte, and it's letting you know the distance that you need to go to get there. In the same way, Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 is not an end in itself. It is a sign to testify, hey, if you think the miracle is awesome, the one who did the miracle is even more awesome than that. Jesus says, you're not coming because you saw the sign. You didn't, you didn't read things right. You're coming because your stomachs were full. And in this, what Jesus is saying is they're not interested in signs. What they're really interested in is supper. Supper. Jesus is here to offer them something far more significant spiritually And yet all they're interested in is what is of immediate physical or material benefit. They are not like us at all, right? We always value the spiritual over the physical or the material. If you have the choice today to receive God's unnamed and undefined blessing or a 10% pay raise, which would you pick? I don't really know what this is. A 10% pay raise? Mm, Tempting. 
Jesus says, guys, listen, you're looking for me, and that's good. But the motive behind why you're looking, you're you're, you're missing the point. You're not reading the sign. And so Jesus says, guys, listen, I know you're coming because your bellies were full. Don't work for food that won't last. The very fact that you're hungry and you want me to do another meal for you shows this food doesn't last. Instead, you should look for something that lasts forever. And he talks about working, and they go, hey, uh, Jesus, since you're just a man and God blessed you with this ability to do this amazing meal yesterday, what do we need to do to be able to do the works of God? So listen, if you're not going to... Jesus, you're not going to do the miracle meal for us. What do we need to be able to do to do the miracle meal? They assume that they can work like God does. So two things that Jesus says here really quickly, not interested in signs, only interested in supper, and then they assume that they can work like God. They are so focused on what they do that they are completely blind to what God is doing. Are you tempted at any point to focus more on yourself than you are to focus on God? This is not just a 2,000-year-old problem. This is a problem today that we substitute the material for the spiritual, that we focus on self instead of focusing on God, on what we can do instead of what God is doing. Jesus says very clearly, the goal is not free food, and the goal is not miraculous works. The goal is simple belief. This is the work of God, that you believe in He whom He has sent. Well, this obviously doesn't sit well with the people, and they get into a long and protracted argument with Jesus. There's got to be something we can do, Jesus. You're telling us all we need to do is believe, and yet their pride manifests itself in in the demands that they make of Jesus. So you're telling us um, to believe in you. And they, um, they ask Jesus, What's, what miracle are you going to do so that we believe in you? Now, remember the context, okay? We're going kind of quick here this morning. We hope we're not going so quick that we lose you. Yesterday, Jesus fed 5,000. So obviously, that sign was not enough. They say, what, what are you going to do today? What you did yesterday? Well, honestly, honestly, let's, let's take a time out. If we stop and evaluate what Jesus did in the feeding of 5,000, that's really a pretty puny miracle. Like, should Jesus be impressed with himself because he took the loaves and the fish? So they get into this argument with Jesus. Like, I don't ever suggest that you do this. It's not a good thing. Jesus can be your phone a friend if you're ever on a Bible trivia TV show. Getting into an argument with Jesus about the Bible, not recommended. And yet we see that many times what Jesus is teaching here is that we are convinced that we are the experts, okay? If you, are, uh, if you are or are married to or know someone who is an expert, would you raise your hand or give an elbow? Anybody married to an expert? This is an equal opportunity, you know, both way elbow thing. We are the experts. And so through the rest of this passage, they, they contrast what Jesus has done in the feeding of the 5,000 with what Moses did feeding the nation of Israel uh, in the Exodus. So a, a, a variety of scripture passages we're looking at, verses 30 through 36, 41 through 42, 48 through 52. You'll see the words on the screen. Here's, here's the debate that they, they get into. Verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Sir, we would like this bread forever. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verses 41 and 42, the Jews respond, and this is they grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Verses 48 through 52, Jesus responds. And he sounds a bit like a broken record. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is here predicting his sacrifice, that he is going to offer his body as a sacrifice, his life for the world. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. They want to get into a debate. They demand a sign because they don't like the one that he did yesterday. And they make a big deal about what happened back in our father's day. Our fathers in the Exodus ate manna. And if you could do a sign like that, that would be something to believe in. A little fish fry? Not impressed. And here's why they think Jesus' miracle is so puny. Number one. Moses fed an entire nation. Jesus fed 5,000 men and their accomplices. Big deal, Jesus. Like, why don't you feed all of us? Number two, Moses fed the entire nation for 40 years. Jesus has done one meal. So 39 years, 11 months, and 29 days from now, we'll be impressed, Jesus, but until then, keep cooking. Number three, Moses gave us heavenly food, this manna. It was a physical substance. It was not like ambrosia. There was not some divine storehouse of manna in heaven. It was an earthly physical thing that was given to them in a supernatural form. But their perspective was that Moses had given them heavenly food. Jesus just did like cheap fish and chips. I guess normal food. We want the heavenly food. And so they say, Jesus, if you want to impress us, we want manna. And we want it forever because mama don't want to have to cook anymore. We want things to be easy. And it's kind of like the guy, I don't know if you have ever done this. I've done this once or twice. Been on a cruise. And there's a story of a Scottish man who um, back in the day was cruising from uh, Scotland to the United States. And he thought it would be wise and prudent of him to pack his food. So in addition to his luggage, he had an entire suitcase of food food goods, food stuffs. He had some good breakfast things. He had some, uh, maybe a loaf of bread, probably not some cold cuts because I don't know that they had those back in the day, but he decided to pack his own food. And uh, the, tra- the travel from uh, that part of Europe to um, the United States took some time, 10, 12, 13, 14 days, I don't know. 
about the end of that, about the end of his journey, his food started getting a little stale and musty. Uh, that bread that was nice and fluffy at the beginning, a little harder now. Not quite like toast, but you know what I mean when you get some, some old bread. It doesn't matter how much mayonnaise you put on that thing, it's still hard. Um, maybe, you know, if you go on a cruise nowadays, you've got a refrigerator that's about the size of half of a microwave. So, you know, his food's just starting to go bad. So knowing that at great cost to himself, he can eat the delicacies found in the restaurant on the cruise ship, he decides that because the trip is almost over, I might be able to afford one or two meals because I don't want to eat this rotten food that I've brought. And what does he find out when he walks into the restaurant but that the meals were all included in the price, and he's been eating his own junk food for this entire time. It's not far removed from what's happening with these people. Jesus has performed this great miracle, and, and they want to look back, and they want to say, well, no, 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 we're not, we're not impressed. We would rather rest on what we look at in the past that we've not even experienced ourselves, and we want to downplay what you're offering instead of receiving what is offered and having their curiosity peaked to understand who Jesus was. The truth is that a faith that's solely and exclusively based upon miracles is always viewed with a, a good bit of skepticism in the New Testament. So it is now time for Jesus to correct their misunderstanding and to correct our misunderstanding. So Jesus rightly puts the first century Jews in us, in our place, and he points to himself as a sustainer who is all-sufficient. There is no need that he cannot fulfill. He is the sustainer who is all-sufficient. And here's how he responds to those scripture passages that we just looked at. There are five, five things that Jesus says or communicates that are helpful. Number one, he tells the Jews that they're mistaken in attributing the source of the manna to Moses. God gave it. My father gave it. Moses got to distribute it. M Moses doesn't get claim for making the manna. Moses didn't do it. God did. Number two, the manna given through Moses was only physical. It was food. What Jesus is here offering by talking about the true bread is sustenance for their soul because manna was never designed to be food for their soul. It was simply food for their body. Number three, the manna was temporary and it never satisfied beyond a few hours. You remember the story that they would try to, when the manna first happened, they tried to collect bucketfuls because they weren't sure it was going to happen again. You know what happened to the bucketfuls? They'd wake up in the morning. It's completely rotten. Maggots, nasty stuff. That because God wanted to teach them to be dependent, not to hoard up for themselves. So the manna was temporary and wouldn't satisfy. And when they woke up the next morning and their stomach would grumble, it was a sign of the weakness of that miracle. But Jesus says that if you eat God's true bread, you'll never hunger again. Wow. That's food for the soul. Number four, Jesus just says kind of casually, hey, I want, you to, I want you to understand, all your fathers that ate man in the wilderness, they died. But not only do people who eat the true bread never hunger again, but they will not die and live forever. Number five, the manna was only for the nation of Israel in the wilderness, but this true bread in multiple ways, it is repeated in this chapter, is for whosoever will. Whoever wants it, can have it. It's worldwide in its scope. While they looked at the fact that Jesus just provided this little puny meal for 5,000 people, Jesus says there is enough bread here for whoever wants it. So Jesus is telling us that we can find something that people have been searching for in vain forever. As a matter of fact, 
we, we memorialize it in a song called, I can't get no satisfaction. And Jesus says, whatever your deepest hunger is, I can satisfy it. You just have to come to the right source. Because when you try to fill it with your accomplishments, you'll never backfill that hole. When you try to fill it with money, how much is enough? A dollar more. A dollar more. And so Jesus says, you, whether you realize it or not, you need this bread that I am offering. And it raises the question, how do we find this bread? How do we get this bread? If Jesus is giving you bread that will completely satiate your hunger, if he's giving you bread that will cause you to live forever, how in the world do we get it? Well, in verses 53 through 58, Jesus provides in gory detail. Gory. If we were in middle school, we would say grody detail. How we get this bread. Actually, verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, unless you chomp on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He uses a very visual picture, drawing an analogy between something that is physical with something that is spiritual. And he also gets to the heart of the issue. Whether it's bread or whether we want to say more generically it's food, we need it for our sustenance. We need it for our sustenance. You don't survive without food. Now here, here's the challenge. For you, is Jesus an issue of daily necessity? Or is he an accessory for the weekend? It really gets to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? I love the way Jesus talks about it here. He says we have to learn to feed on him. And uh, we've got some little ones here. Do we have any really little ones? Uh, I don't think so. Anybody here feeding a baby? No, I think all of them can kind of feed themselves. Listen, it's really cute. It's really cute when they're young to do the airplane open the hangar, oh, crash and burn, you know, um, or the motorboat, whatever it is. But like, if they're 15 and you're still doing it, you have a problem. Actually, if they're three and you're still doing it, you have a problem. Because while they may not cook for themselves, you expect them, unless you're a baby bird, you have to eat for yourself. Yeah, sticking your beak down your mom's gullet to get her pre-digested food. You have to eat your own food yourself. And yet, when we talk about feeding on Christ, it seems like the vast majority of the church is, is really anxious for the buffet on Sunday. 
and then they don't eat anything the rest of the week. Billy Graham himself has said, if all Christians would break out their Bible at the same time, it would be the end of life as we know it, because a dust storm so great would occur that the sun would be blocked out for the rest of life. And we laugh at that because we go, guilty as charged. I bring my Bible on Sunday, but I got to dust it off before I bring it. Or I don't even know where my Bible is because it's been so long since I've touched it. And, and, and I sit there and I go, try this. Make breakfast this morning your last meal until next Sunday. And you wouldn't think about that. But you will starve yourself of God's word. And yet, learning how to feed upon Christ, not, not be spoon-fed. Listen, Sunday school, Bible studies, women's studies, men's studies, theology breakfast, all of those things are good. And you can use those as assets, protein shakes, to feed yourself. But there's a daily responsibility that we have to feed upon Christ. There is no other way for us to grow. And if it's true for us physically, this is true for us spiritually as well. And Jesus makes it really clear that his death, because I don't know how you can eat him and drink him without him being dead. Because my flesh is your food. Very visceral, but Jesus is drawing an analogy. As a matter of fact, in a few minutes when we take the cup and we take the bread, we don't believe that this is physically his flesh and blood. We believe that it is a symbol that is used. And as Jesus is clarifying this language, he he says a couple things uh, in his language that make it really clear how we appropriate his life-giving, providentially sustaining benefit. How do we feed upon Christ? The three words that he uses, the first word that he uses is believe. We believe in Jesus. We, we believe. We believe that he was sent by God. We believe that he was sinless. We believe that he offered his sinless life as a substitute for us. He died in our place. We believe he was sent by God, son of God, savior of man. We believe this and we feed through faith. We don't feed through food. We feed our souls through faith. He says, believe. Two other words that he uses, verbs that he uses. Verse 35 he says, come. If you, if you want Christ, if you want the bread that he offers, you come to Christ. And that's not an issue of physical relocation. Spiritually, when we talk about coming to Christ, that doesn't have anything to do with walking an aisle. Coming to Christ means coming to him and offering yourself to him. It means dedicating yourself. It means giving yourself. It means believing in him in such a way that you're now personally involved. You don't just believe, you come and you give. I offer myself to you. Verse 40, he says, look, in um, the Old Testament, when they were infected with the fiery serpents, they, they put a bronze serpent on a pole and they said, whoever looks to this as a symbol of God's salvation will, will look and live. And it's not simply an issue of glancing at Jesus, it's looking at him with longing and desiring. Yes, I know facts about Jesus. I believe that he was a historical person, but I want him. I am looking at him longingly. I desire what only he can give, and so I believe. And because I believe, I come. Because I have looked and I have seen that there is nothing else that can satisfy quite like he can. Here's what's great. It's a beautiful passage, and we don't have the opportunity to mine all the depths, but two precious promises that Jesus says, if you come, if you look, if you believe, if you come, when you have come to Christ, 
you will look back and you will see it was not so much an issue of your coming as much as it was an issue of the Father drawing. Now, that should humble you a little bit because you cannot come unless the Father draws. So the humility that that produces is a good thing. Here's the practical benefit. It means that you are wanted. If you are a Christian, it is not because you have chosen God. It is because God has chosen you. He has wanted you to be his child, to be his son or his daughter. That's incredible. While you may, from a human perspective, only see your action, your action is mysteriously and invisibly dependent upon God's uh, pre-existing drawing of you because he wants you for himself. Number two, Jesus promises to receive everyone who is given to him. No one will fall through the cracks. His, his list of people that he is going to save is not so long that he's going to forget one or two or a whole class of people. He will receive every single one who is given to him. You are more secure with him than you are with social security. You're secure. So matter, no matter what state you find yourself in this morning, no matter what your needs are and maybe what your greeds are, I, I don't know what your needs are this morning, um, you could have had something happen this week that makes you feel really small and insignificant. Chances are you probably have. It was all, listen, the world's a big, nasty place. It doesn't care about you. So there's a lot of things that can make you feel insignificant, but Jesus won't. You'll find uh, your search for significance in Jesus. There may be issues of, of comfort. Not you need your air conditioning fixed, but there's a hole in your heart that nobody else can fill, not your spouse, not your best friend, not your mom and dad. But there may be an issue of comfort that you've not voiced to anyone that you will find filled in Christ. You may have an issue of care, that there's, there's, there's something that you're holding on to that you can't let go. And apart from the care of Christ, it seems like nobody else cares. Jesus cares. It could be an issue of identity. You're struggling with your self-image. And you're trying to, to, to backfill the whole of your identity with your accomplishments. And it's a bottomless pit. You keep putting things that you do in and you still don't feel like you have your, your, your anything. Or you, you fill it with money or you fill it with whatever it is that you find your identity in. And the reason is anything that you use to identify yourself, your nationality, your race, is not, if you are a Christian, the primary thing that you should be identified by. You should be identified by Christ. And until you get to that point, whether it's your political identity, your sexual identity, your gender identity, it's all worthless because we are to be identified by Christ. Anything that you need will be found in Christ. And we are eating junk food, looking to others for a nourishment in a relationship that we will never find apart from a relationship with Christ. I can make you this promise. Without even intending to, any other human being that you put your trust in will let you down. Not because they mean to. They may even love you and be committed to you. They're a sinner just like you. And they're not going to know what's going on in your mind and your heart, and they're going to say the wrong thing on accident. And they're going to let you down. Don't look to others for nourishment that you should only find in Christ. Don't look to material things for a sustenance that, to fill a spiritual hole. There is nothing material you can put into that hole that will fill it up. Only Christ. Only Jesus. Satisfaction can be found, but it can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in Christ. And friends, we believe this. 
we, we believe that what we do here in just a few minutes after we sing is not an empty ritual. It's not an issue of religious formality. It's not an issue of, you know, well, it's Lord's Supper Sunday. We got to do this. No, no, no. If that's your attitude. Please refrain. We beg of you. Don't do it. It's of no benefit to you. We believe that, that by the brokenness of his body that is represented by his blood and by his flesh, that we find life in his name. And so we get to enter into um, holy communion with God where we recognize what we bring to the equation, our wickedness, our vileness, our sin, and our pollution. And we receive from him cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness and adoption. And so we don't just believe it. We sing it and we live it. Would you pray with me, please? Fathers, we have the opportunity now to feed upon Christ and to remember his sacrifice. I pray that you will add the presence of your spirit upon uh, this holy remembrance to give us life, to remember that there is nothing that we do that earns us merit or good standing with you. It is only to your cross that we cling. It is only to your Christ that we can have hope, that we can place our hope. And Father, we pray that as we sing in faith, that even through this next song, that you break up the hardness of our hearts to receive of your goodness and your bounty to give us life in your name. We pray. Amen.